Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast, presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films, or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. <laughs> Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Maddie Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. In 1996, Detroit ska punk band The Suicide Machines released their major label debut, Destruction by Definition. Their label, Hollywood Records, spent a quarter of a million dollars making it, and yet it still sounds super punk rock and never overproduced. It's a classic record, arguably the most punk rock sounding of all the big ska releases in the 90s. The group released several more awesome albums, including last year's Revolution Spring. Our guest today, Jason Navarro, is Suicide Machine's lead singer and only consistent member of the band. Aside from Suicide Machines, he's played in other groups like Hellmouth, Break Anchor, and Jay Navarro and the Traders. Suicide Machines are one of the bands that I feel like stand the test of time as far as ska punk goes. Oh, absolutely. Especially uh, their Destruction by Definition album. That's a classic album. I feel like some of the other classic albums like Operation Ivy, Energy, or, you know, a band like Slapstick, you know, Suicide Machines is still happening. Yeah. And they're still good. The album they put out last year is a great record. Yeah, I really enjoy that record. I think they did a great job. They didn't, you know, nobody reinvented the wheel with that record, but it sounds like Suicide Machines and it sounds like a good version of Suicide Machines. And it's relevant to what's, you know, what's happening right now politically and socially, which I think is an important aspect of the band in general. I really like talking to Jay. I feel like he's the type of person that you would want to hang out with, regardless of whether or not you have an affiliation with his band. So, okay. I want to ask you first about, you met Kelsey Grammer at a show, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, what happened? I, I, give me the deets on that. Oh, I don't know, dude. It's funny because we got crucified online because I guess he's like, I don't know, like Republican dude or like, I don't know what, some some sort of thing with him. I just know him as, you know, it's Frazier. I don't know anything about the person. Like, I don't know anything <laughs> about that guy. Yeah. Right? Like, oh, it's a dude from Cheers, you know? Yeah. Uh, nah, dude. Everyone was just drinking and, and there's all these beer tents and dude, he owns a brewery. And he was there getting drunk and at his beer tent. <laughs> How drunk was he? Uh, you know, rumor has it he was, he's not a, a drinker anymore, but he was definitely drunk. <laughs> yeah. Someone's like, I thought he was sober. I'm like, he definitely was not sober. <laughs> I wanted to start with talking a little bit about your uh, album you put out last year. Oh, yeah, sure. You guys got a ton of good, like positive feedback from Scott and Punk scene, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Didn't Scott Punk Daily call it like the the best album of the year or something like that? 
something. Yeah, a, a few people did. I think I think they were definitely one of them. Uh, yeah, I don't know, man. I, you know, we're just happy to have made an album like this late in the in in the game with this, you know, collective. You know, like it's, we didn't know if we would ever put out another album. You know. Yeah. And uh, and and we 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 always said we might and then it just the time hit and it was like oh okay this is this is good we like we were liking what we were writing you know what i mean had you been working on new material for a while or was that sort of a new thing oh yeah man like for three years like we wrote a bunch and we're like oh that sucks oh, that sucks <laughs> and, and then and then like and then all of a sudden like about a year before that record, we started writing a, a lot of really good songs, and we were just like, "All right, we're ready. We're gonna do a record. Like, we we got we got it." You know? Were you nervous at all about you know coming back at your first album in fifteen years, and would anyone care or any of that kind of stuff, or did you not even really think about that? Nah, man, I don't think about that kind of stuff. I, I, I for one, I I knew it was good, but I also know that no one's gonna accept it, or at least I thought no one would accept it. It kind of ended up being the other way around a lot of people did i kind of figured no one would accept it right but long story short i don't know i don't really care <laughs> so <laughs> we you know what i mean like we, we don't have to worry about that kind of stuff because we don't like tour for a living so like if the album flopped like who gives a fuck like you know we're happy with it so whatever <laughs> yeah i mean you're at a different time in your life you know yeah yeah totally but you know at the same time it's like you know, if you've been around a while, people expect your later albums to not be as good. So there is like a little bit of a, uh, there's almost like a bias against putting out something at this point in your career. Yeah, we got lucky somehow. I don't know. People seem to like it. So this was like more of a Jason album than like the previous albums. Is that true? Like, did you write more of the songs than the older ones? Uh, this, I wrote a lot of it, but you know, it's definitely, a group, it's always a group effort with the machines. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Uh, at, at one time, you know, it, it was always different. Like each era was a little bit different. Like, you know, a lot of it was Dan or then me, Derek or Dan or, or me or Royce and me and Dan. And it was kind of always, every year is a little bit different. I, I would say, I don't know about me, I'm not say that I, I wrote all the lyrics except for one song. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Which is the bulk of the material. I wrote quite a lot of the songs too, but I, I guess what people are saying it's a me album is, or maybe if I said it, it's just because it was a lot about kind of what I've been through in the past 20 years, 15 years of my life. So it was more of what I've been through is why maybe I, I say it's a, a me record. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's de it definitely been a, a perspective of things that, that I have experienced recently. A lot of times, like we would write, like you look at a song like, you know, SOS or something, which I what, you know, wrote with Derek. It's, it's a perspective on just something in a general in the world. Like a lot of the machine songs, sometimes they're personal, you know, once in a while they're personal for sure. But like a lot of it was more perspective on, uh, it wasn't like, it, it wasn't tied in with, you know me writing it like it was a just like i can't explain it it's like almost like, not like you're writing in third person but like even dan was the same way like we would write like so anyone else in the rest of the world can hear it and understand it they don't hasn't have to be relatable personally 
and that's how a lot of the machine songs were and it, this is just the first album that was extremely i guess personal in our catalog i assume you know you change as you get older and your your creativity changes a little bit did you just find yourself coming from a more personal perspective when it's it was time to sit down and write yeah man i've been through a lot of shit in the past few years <laughs> so <laughs> You know what I mean? Like the new the new record we're working on is definitely well, there's only one very personal song, and the rest of it is back to almost like, you know, uh, perspective. You know what I mean? If someone else can look at it, it it's you know it reminds me almost of uh, you know like battle hymns a little bit or something. But but that being said, like it, there's only one song that's personal on it at all. You know what I mean? So I don't know. It just it was the time. You know what I mean? Like just a lot of stuff i had going through my head so what type of stuff can we get into it i mean you'd have to pick out every song every song is different you know can i just ask about my favorite song on the record uh yeah sure (laughs) (laughs) detroit is the new miami oh yeah yeah what's that all about you can't afford to live here anymore and then you got you know try you got climate change give it another uh 100 years and uh you know we'll be the new florida you know, they'll be under, they'll be underwater and everyone will want, you know, waterfront property and it'll, <laughs> we'll eventually have the palm trees up here probably. But yeah, it, it's just a matter of like, that song is more about climate change. You know, that that's funny because it, that title is more personal just because I, I see my city becoming so expensive to live in, you know, that it's normal inhabitants can't survive here you know so what's going to happen the more people move into detroit the more you know the the rich people move into detroit or or the or white people move into detroit like they, they buy everything up they're driving the cost of everything up and it's like you know the locals who've lived here their whole lives can't like afford to live here anymore what, what happens when that happens right so then you throw in climate change on top of it in and now it's becoming a destination. People want to live here. It's crazy to think that anyone would ever, like you'd have told me when I was a kid that anyone wouldn't want to live, like come to Detroit and live. I'd be like, you're nuts. Like, <laughs> you know, no, never in a million years. But like what started it was, is a lot of people couldn't afford, this is gonna be, this is crazy. A lot of people don't know about this, but like a lot of artists couldn't afford to live in New York anymore. And or places like Paris, and they would seriously rent buildings in Detroit, and stay here half a year to do art. So we, yeah, so we had a lot of artists living in this in the city, which is awesome. But I would say that was the beginning of it. You know what I mean? And then like a bunch of corporations started buying into the city, and like Amazon bought out our state fairgrounds, which is sad to see. Which is like in the heart, which is in the city. You know, it's not like state fairgrounds like ours aren't out in the country. It's actually in the city on eight mile. All right, so between seven and eight mile. I don't know. It's weird. It there's a lot to that song, but I would say that's the the least personal song in the whole on the whole record, actually. <laughs> Good job, Adam. <laughs> well, I mean, for me, it's I was mostly going off of I really like the vocal performance on it. It's super aggressive. It's nice because you know, in comparison to a lot of the record where you're really singing like a lot more than on previous records yeah which but it's like still it still has the grit but you're like i don't know if it's just coming with with uh experience and age and not wanting to wreck your voice every night but there's still there's still some parts where you're going hard yeah no that's funny because then 
I'll go back to that song in one second, but like the new the new 12 inch split that's gonna come out with Coquettish is actually kind of pissed off. Nice. So I would say there's only one we don't know what's gonna make it yet, but I think there's only gonna be one really kind of singing, I guess you could say, you know, melodic song. The rest is pretty the rest is pretty angry. But uh back to that song, a lot of people don't know is the other singer singing on the end of that song, the bridge, I guess you would call it is uh jeff sanguis he used to be in telegraph the scholars he's uh sick. yeah he's in a punk band called the rebel spies now that's really good but yeah that's him on the end of there screaming he used to be in this great band called called Geiga, which is like a grindcore band nice so i was like you're coming in dude <laughs> so the other crazy vocal you hear on that is my friend jeff we used to like live together back in the day I wish I could remember the name of this musician, but I remember like years ago, I interviewed this uh, Detroit musician. He, he was in a band that had, had like a single at some point, a rock and roll band. And he was telling me about how, you know, there was that period of, for Detroit, it was like all these abandoned buildings and stuff. And that it was, you know, just the, the degree to which it was like not a destination whatsoever, how they couldn't even find tenants for a lot of the buildings downtown and stuff i mean obviously you know you remember that era and so it was from that era that the that the artists started to inhabit the uh, buildings part part of the year right yep yep that was kind of how it's how that's i to me that's kind of how i felt like it started though like you knew something was going to happen when when all these artists were like living here half the year like well you know what i mean because they, they couldn't afford to live in new york you know, I mean, they couldn't afford a studio in New York. They could get a whole loft here, you know, a whole huge building loft, you know. And so it was just interesting to see, like, that was that was the first time I, I started thinking about, like, that's really weird that they're, these people are coming here. When was that? Do you remember? Um, like, you know, 96, 97, I yeah. would say, is when the first, first couple times I realized people were moving here from like places like new york because they couldn't afford it but now it's like now it's become that here like it's you can still find some reasonably priced stuff in the city but the way it's going now it's it's it it won't be much longer before it you know there's parts of the city where uh you know there's you know a million dollar house like what like it's insane when did you start to notice that the full-on gentrification or the you know inflation started happening um whole foods came to town <laughs> <laughs> yeah when was that Star starbucks came to town oh actually um you know we know what it was it was uh they demolished oh wait no it wasn't them god what was the tech was it google one of the tech companies came here and built a huge building oh i can't i'm sorry i'm blanking out on the name of which tech company oh shit I'd have to think about it in a minute, but a tech company came here and built a building, and that was kind of like we knew, yeah, that 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 was a thing because they could buy a huge area in downtown Detroit and build a huge, beautiful building, or buy an old building and they could afford it to move their company here. I'm sorry, I can't think of the name of the company right now. Yeah, uh, but that that was the first sign. If I, I maybe I'll think of it later on in the interview, but that was the first sign of like like that happening. You know, this is a city that had, you couldn't even go to, you couldn't even find a grocery store in the city. All of a sudden, there's this huge tech building downtown company, you know, like, oh, what's it? Well, that's kind of crazy, you know? And it just kind of like, 
started spreading out from there. Like you can go on downtown Woodward and there's like, you know, a Macy's on downtown Woodward, which, you know, 1940, <laughs> you know, there was a, there was a, there was a Hudson's <laughs> building, you know what I mean? Uh, but you know, then there riots happened in 68 and after the riots happened, it was just like, that was it, man. We never recovered from it. A lot of people don't like realize that, like that, that riot that started at the Bel Air motel in Detroit, that, that was like, it, the city didn't, it just never recovered from it, man, up until the past, you know, 10, 10 or 15 years. So yeah, it was a very different time, man. The place was just abandoned. Yeah. No, no rules, man. No fucking rules. <laughs> so the environment that suicide machines formed in was that environment then? Well, Dan grew up, uh, no, he, he was pretty close to Detroit. We, we all lived, grew, we all were grow, uh, born in like the suburbs of Detroit. The Detroit metro area is actually really huge. It's very spread out, but we, you know, you know, and, and over the years we all lived in and out of Detroit. We, there's a lot of other neighborhoods that aren't called Detroit, but they're in Detroit, like um, Hamtramck or Brightmore and stuff like that. Like a lot of people don't get it. It's like city inside of the city. Mm -hmm. But almost like having a borough, you know, New York City, I guess you could say. But that that being said, like, yeah, in and out of the city, all over, all of us, all over this for the years, you know, I lived at Five and Telegraph, uh, all that. I remember you telling me that you guys were more like part of the punk scene or the hardcore scene than you were the even the ska scene or anything like that uh, and that and that it was kind of a scary scene at the time yeah yeah it was a terrifying scene dude it was violent scary as fuck you know back then like it was still all the people who were outcasts for the most part or just like it was still the freaks and psychopaths you know what i mean that were like the misfits the kids were fucked up that was like what the punk rock scene was and you know, you might think, well, that's the cool kids, but you know, that there wasn't much separating some of the people who were at punk shows or even playing in bands, you know, between it was like, yeah, they had a guitar, but yeah, they're probably going to get locked up or killed or kill somebody. <laughs> you know what I mean, like <laughs> that was like, that was how that scene was, man. There's like two different scenes in Detroit. There's a really like the one I was involved in because Rape on My House uh, on Seven and Telegraph was like a pretty famous punk bar called blondies and then before that was the graystone which was not too far from my house either it was just uh both in super violent rough neighborhoods and you know half the time you didn't know if you were gonna you know walk out of, of a show at the end of the night you were gonna get beat or stabbed or who knows like that that's kind of how it was then you know you kind of had some of the more downtown scene like you'd see some of the ska bands like it, it was just an entirely different vibe man like it, it wasn't violent and scary so yeah it was weird like i didn't really catch up to that scene until later because i was just it was just more of where i lived i lived on the west side of the city and that's that part of the city was completely fucked up and that's where the you know where the, i was going to see bands it was dangerous what were some of the like bands that you were like going to see regularly or really into at that time mm, slaughterhouse um Screaming Bloody Leopard Children. Uh, let's see, Feisty Cadavers. Uh, oh man, there, there was, dude, Detroit had the Almighty Lumberjacks of Death. Uh, <laughs> oh. nah, hey, I, it sounds funny, but they were great bands, man. Uh, Disgust. 
um, Scruffy Tearaways. There are so many good bands. Before Coldest Life was Coldest Life, there was the Mattress Rats. That's what they used to be called when they were punks before they became hardcore dudes. Like, there's a lot of good bands, man. It was a good scene. Uh, Son of Sam, Hillside Stranglers, <laughs> both late. Both of Lacey's bands, man, are great. All good names. <laughs> great names. Yeah, boom and boom and the, the Legion of Doom. <laughs> Do you remember any insanity of these uh, early shows? You know, like that you went to as an audience member. Yeah, I mean, it was not, it wasn't weird to walk out of a bar and see dudes fighting with baseball bats or chunks of concrete or like, oh, like my friend Zach laying on the ground stabbed. You know what I mean? Like it was pretty normal. I mean, was did it feel as terrifying then as thinking about it as an adult with some perspective now? Or was it, did it just seem kind of just like, oh, I guess this is what it is? I would never let my kids go do it. That's for sure. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, hell no, man. It was, dan- it was dangerous as fuck, dude. And you knew it was because I'd be yeah. like, I remember, you know, you, but you loved it so much and you wanted, you know, you feel like, oh, I found all the crazies and I'm fucking crazy too. So this is where I'm supposed to be. And, you know, there was definitely a lot of accepting people, too. You know what I mean? Like, it's my friend Steve Crass from the Feisty Cadavers. He was like a big brother to me, you know? So Jimmy Jimmy Doom from ALD, All My Lumberjacks and Death, was like a big brother. So you find these you find these beautiful, like, diamonds in the rough that were just, like, great people. But, like, you know, you, you wanted it so bad, and you, you finally found it, and, like, yeah, this is my shit. Like, you, you were willing to, like who knows you hopefully only get your ass kicked did we just such a fan of the music and the bands that you kind of risked that because you like the music or was it you were you sort of attracted to the the lawlessness of the scene itself um i would say it was the music for the lawlessness it was it was definitely the music but you gotta understand like when people talk about like uh punk rock gangs in la and stuff like that we we had punk rock gangs in detroit you know what I mean? It was everyone was pretty cool, but like you had the Apple Sids, uh, the West Side Rejects. Uh, you know what I mean? So they're they're um, the, uh, the Violent Brotherhood. Like it, like we had punk, like there's punk rock gangs because most of the people more stuck with each other because they had to fight the bikers people in the neighborhood. And that's kind of why they did it. Was there? Uh, I think you might have mentioned it, but was there like a, a specific venue where a lot of the shows happened, or place and stuff? There was a lot. Um, yeah, man. There's there's the Greystone. Um, that was a big one. Blondies, the original Blondies, the first the, the first Blondies. Like that place is so lawless. I remember like smoking crack sitting next to the door guy. Like we broke an <laughs> antenna. We broke an antenna. We dude, we robbed the crack dealer. We. Went to the show, broke an antenna off an old muscle car because it was a telescoping antenna, sat four feet away from the owner of the bar while he was getting charging people in and just smoked rocks. Like that's, that's like that. I'm telling you, man, there's just like, there's really no rules. Wow. Um, yeah. And then there's St. Andrews Hall, which is kind of like that other downtown scene where bands like, you know, Gangster Fun, the exceptions could thrive. Yeah. Um, you know, so St. Andrews is cool or, um, the majestic, which is still going strong. Both of those places to this day, uh, you need to go to the East side. You had Todd's, which is another awful place. Uh, always had Harpo's it's never closed and it should. <laughs> <laughs> Why should it close? Cause it's horrible. The owner's horrible. 
Yeah. My good friend got shot and killed outside of that place. Ugh. Yeah, the guy was telling me it was kind of like one of my big brothers, uh, Steve Kras from the Feisty Cadavers. Like, it's just a bad, rough neighborhood. You got the East Side Bloods. You got to look out for them, man. Been there forever. I'm not saying that they did it. I'm just saying that it's such a rough neighborhood. Right. And the owner sucks. Worst dude ever. Why is he so bad? Uh, well, he's pulled guns on people. He pulled gun on us. Him and his biker buddies pulled a gun on, uh, I think it was Fang and the Capitalist Casualties. Uh, they beat up, uh, God, what's ugly, ugly Kid Joe? Who the fuck? Damn Yankees. No, it's Damn Yankees. With some, <laughs> co- some cock rock band. I can't remember who it was, but they 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 beat him up. <laughs> I, dude, I wish I wish I could tell I wish I could tell you the name of the band. Dude, you would laugh, and I can't think of. It. Let's let's say it's Ugly Kid Joe. That's fine. <laughs> I, I, I'm, pro- I'm probably wrong, but I feel like it was uh, fuck, man. I remember, man. It was one of those kind of bands, right? Yeah, dude. Here's a good one. Entombed from Sweden pulled up, and they didn't they didn't sell any tickets. And he's like, "Oh, there's no power." And they're like. The lights are on inside of your club. He's like, nope, no, they're not. Go home. No guarantee. You're out. Like they're supposed to pay him something, even you know what I mean. If power goes out, they're contracted. They're just like, no, get the fuck out here. Like that's just the kind of shit they did, man. Wow. Yeah. Not cool. Yeah, not at all. I can't imagine coming all the way from Sweden. (laughs) No show. Go home, dude. One of my favorite bands. You know, I was like, oh man, dude. Did you have bands before the Suicide Machines? Yeah, yeah. What were some of the bands you were in before? Uh, I think the first show I ever played bass for, I played for this awful metal band called uh, Intravenous De Milo. And uh, I think that was 19, I was 13 years old, I think the first time I played a show. 14, 13, so like 80, 80 maybe 1988 was the first time I played a show. Uh, and it sucked because I was like the only punk rocker in the band you know but I wasn't cool enough to play for all the, the good punk bands it was, I don't know I just wasn't cool enough or something yeah. and then after that I one of the cooler punk bands uh, Positively Negative let me in to play bass for them uh, played with them uh, played with I actually ended up playing bass for Screaming Bloody Leopard Children here in Detroit which were like probably one of the best crust punk bands of all time from here so I ended up playing that's kind of how what taught me how to do walking bass lines like I loved watching Johnny Lunchmeat the old uh, bass player play because he actually back then it was like you know it's crappy punk just play the same note let the guitar players play him play fast and you know and, and angry and, and I remember thinking this guy is doing he's you know running through the note and running lines on on the notes like what i mean is like the guitar player be holding one and he's running the line he's not just he's he's noodling you know and i was like i learned how to play all that stuff because i was so i thought it was so cool that a punk guy was like doing that and they ended up kicking him out and since i had already played for uh some punk bands those and i knew those dudes they were like you're the bass player i was like all right i'm in uh (laughs) You know, and that's kind of like where the walking bass lines came. So I originally played bass for the Suicide Machines first. What was the initial? So if you were playing bass, what was everybody else doing in the early first version? Well, Dan was playing guitar and we we both were singing. And then uh, and then we had this guy, Stefan Rary, on drums. 
that doesn't get much credit in the in the band but he did the very first uh the very first demo he was on just a three-piece yeah it was just a three-piece and like i really loved seeing hardcore bands i saw a lot of hardcore bands too like back then and i always loved how they had a hardcore frontman would be like in the crowd singing with people even more so than punk bands were at the time you know and uh you know i was seeing bands like like judge and stuff back then too and and I was like, you know what, man? Operation Ivy had just their own singer too, man. And and I want to get in the crowd and sing with people. Like, fuck it, I'm not gonna play bass. We need we need someone to like sing. And so I just we recruited one of my best friends. He didn't even have a bass or an amp. I was just like, here, learn how to play. <laughs> you got you're 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 gonna, you're gonna be the guy. Here's my bass and amp. Like <laughs> that was it. Man. How old were you at this point? Uh, at that point, I was uh, I think. 19 18 i was in high school still so yeah probably 18 17 i don't know something like that probably 18 i think uh, the machine started 90 well, yeah i just graduated I take that back i was thinking it was 18 now i think about it i think when the machine started but i had already been playing in bands you know i played for i played bass for like cola's life too I don't know. oh yeah I, I, yeah i'd already been in been doing it you know what i mean before the machines started so was the machines the first sort of band to do ska or did you have any experience before that no man no i just i just saw gangster fun and and was just like holy shit there's dudes that do stuff that i like 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 because i kind of was starting to find ska mm-hmm. you know i found fishbone and i found operation ivy and the specials and you know what i mean and and i didn't know who the fuck gangster fun was and i remember one of my friends like dude you gotta go see this ska band gangster fun like what there's a ska band in detroit like because i was on that west side scene and just we didn't know we were just isolated it was a weird ever-revolving circle circle of bands and people we didn't venture to the other parts of the city and uh, i went and saw gangster fun i was like this is the fucking best thing ever <laughs> you, know, you know what i mean like it was just like dude everyone's cool everyone's smiling everyone's having a good time nothing felt threatening it, it was it was wild it was definitely wild you know, it was super wild. Their shows are always fucking wild, but you know, it was ever it was all encompassing. Didn't matter who you were at their show. You could yeah. be a punker, or a hardcore guy, a girl, a boy, gay, whatever color. It didn't matter. Like their shows were great. And then I finally started seeing a couple other bands in Michigan that I that I uh, never heard of too because they found out that we had kind of like. But I didn't. I didn't start the machines yet. After, after I saw Gangster Fun before I started the machines. So, um, but right around the time we started the machines, you know, there was bands like The Exceptions, who I actually ended up sitting and singing for for I think like two shows because they lost their singer. Uh, and then there was like Etch a Sketch from Ann Arbor. Man, what a fantastic band! A lot of people don't know, but that that band was great. I've never heard that one. Before. Yeah, female fronted, although Dave Tuck on the drums would totally like straight up chat really good, like while he was playing the drums. But like, great, great Scott Rock Study band from Michigan. Um, I think they own, I don't know if they put anything out besides being on a comp, a 12 inch comp, like a Midwest Great Lakes comp or something like that. But dude, fantastic, fantastic Scott band from around here. So we kind of started like, you know, starting making connections with with those kind of people 
you know, I think uh, the Suicide Machine's very first real show was actually with Etch a Sketch in Ann Arbor, actually. Yeah, look them up. Great band. How did that show go? Oh, it was great. I think we sucked, but <laughs> everyone, everyone, everyone was nice to us. I have a recording of it. It's fucking awful. Wow. How, how's that recording? Is, I mean, how do you record it? Was, is it off a board or is it a like a boombox? It's off a board. It's fucking horrible. <laughs> I want to hear that. Oh, that no, you don't. <laughs> oh no! I mean, I've listened to some bad Scott Punk recordings. So oh, it's bad. I, can, I think I could deal. It's kind of funny, man. We do a negative approach cover even back then. <laughs> so even though we're playing Scott, we're fucking covering. Oh, we did like I think we did like a. Uh, if I remember correctly, we even did a. It's funny because it was Scott show, and we did like uh, a Dayglo abortions song too. <laughs> nice. <laughs> we didn't know, you know. I don't know. Fucking whatever. So you kind of had these different influences, like you were trying to, like you liked the ska stuff that was happening, but you also still were interested in that sort of hardcore and punk stuff. You're trying to kind of bring all that together. Yeah, man. Detroit, like like I said, it, we were the music was fairly violent too. There was, mm-hmm. It was definitely a way angrier side to Detroit, I think, than most punk scenes, which is maybe why uh, it seems like a lot of it's relatable between New York and Detroit. It's very similar. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why the music was like that. That's why, like, don't get me wrong. I mean, there's still some weird aspects of like pissed off and Hey, fuck you kind of shit, even with gangster fun, but it's delivered differently. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, I mean, it was just, the music was extremely violent in Detroit. You know what I mean? And that's just the, what it was. It was, everything pissed off you know what i mean it was just pissed off man straight up yeah gangster fun like uh they didn't really come out here very much um to california i mean they did but i don't think i caught them when they did but i was a fan of theirs in terms of just owning their albums and stuff and uh i didn't realize how the kind of aggro energy that was at their shows until i talked to them you know for my book and uh, oh, talk, yeah. talk to some other people, you know, like Dan Pothouse. And he's like, oh, their shows were kind of chaotic. There was a kind of chaotic energy to them. Yeah, wild, man. That's what I meant. It was like, yeah, you know, I may have seen all these nice things about it, but we got to understand it was fucking wild. And they fucked with a lot of people, too. Yeah. What would they do to fuck with people? Uh, well, I don't know. Like, I'm sure John told you about being chased out of the blind pig for painting over, you know, Kurt whatever his name from Nirvana's fucking drawing that they were so sacred on their wall there. He fucking took a, took a paint roller and just painted over the whole thing. What's that guy's? Oh, Kurt Cobain. And and the people in the bar chased him down the street, trying to beat him up. Like, and I was like, Oh, I guess they're not playing. (laughs) Like they just, they fucked with people in a lot of different ways. And that's, and I thought that was great. That's the Detroit side of it. Like they might be nicest dudes ever, but like, you know, John will still put his foot up your ass. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Even, even as an old man, <laughs> you know, that's what I love about him. Here's a story. He told me um, that there was like fights that happen and that their shows so often that they would just go into the Rocky theme anytime it yep. happened and just kind of encourage it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I remember them busting in the ZZ Top Lagrange during a fight before. <laughs> you know what I mean, <laughs> dude? It was brilliant. People were fighting, and then it's like, oh god, they fucking eat. Well, I mean, that everyone fought in Detroit. That's what I'm saying. It was like 
it was a welcoming thing, but at the same time, like, you know, you've got every walk of life in their show. Yeah. It, something's bound to go wrong. Here was one thing he threw at me sort of like near the end of our discussions. And I didn't get too much elaboration on it. He said like, oh yeah, our percussionists would just do magic tricks while we were playing. I was like, what are you talking about? Magic tricks? Did you see this? Magic tricks? I never remember seeing a magic trick, but I, would, I wouldn't I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah. That's Dave's brother. Yeah, oh, I wouldn't yeah. doubt it. I could see I could see him doing it. Yeah. Or not Dave, but yeah, it's Dave, right? The guitar player. Dave M- Minning. Oh, God. Dave Minning? Yeah, yeah, Dave Minning. Yeah. His drummer, the drummer is his brother. Oh, they're talking about the guy who was doing the percussion shit, huh? Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. Oh, uh, yeah. No, I never saw him do anything like that. Hmm. But I was also three sheets to the, to the wind most of the time, so I'm doing <laughs> drugs. Missing the magic show. Missing the magic show, busy, busy smoking crack. I ate a lot of, well, I ate a lot of acid. I was probably seeing a magic show. So, <laughs> so okay. You told me in our interview that um, you guys had a particularly wild crowd to the point where a lot of bands from the Scott and even punk scene didn't want to play with you guys because of your crowd. I'd like to hear a little bit about this. Well, like, you know, I, I could give many examples. Like we, we played with 15 I don't know if you ever heard of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. I think they were bummed out on how wild it was. Like East Bay was more like, hey, let's have fun. And Detroit like is more, was more like, we're going to kill each other in the pit. <laughs> yeah. Like, And they weren't too happy about it. So I remember Jeff Ott being bummed out. They played with us. And, and so he got naked, which he did a lot. And then I think he was trying to diffuse people from dancing so wild. And actually my... uh my roommate Jeff, who sang on the end of uh, Detroit's New Miami, ended up fist fighting Jeff Hot while he was naked. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So it was like that was just kind of how it was. So like our crowd was always wild because so the the ska bands didn't really like playing with us because our crowd was like a bunch of crusties and hardcore kids, some of them, and they'd you know pile on just like a hardcore show, and you know so the ska dudes didn't like it, and then. You know, the hardcore kids are like, you you dudes are freaks. So I just don't even fucking get it. Like, it it was weird. Like, we just had wild shows, man. Our shows were fucking always crazy. Lots of stage diving, people climbing up in the ceiling, you know, jumping. and Like, that's just kind of how our shows always were back then. And I think a lot of people, kind of like, I don't know, man. A lot of people didn't like playing with us because... I don't know. We were just going to upstage him. I hate to like sound like a dickhead, but like <laughs> we are, it wasn't because of the band. It was because so many people wanted to get fucking nuts and they knew almost just like at a gangster fun show, they knew at a machine show oh, they could get fucking crazy and they were going to do it. They're going to fucking release some crazy shit. And that's just, you know, that's how it was. And so uh, once you uh, passed off the bass duties, were you in the audience most of the time in those early shows? Oh, yeah, man, I'd get so drunk. I'd just start throwing up on stage and pass the mic out so other people could sing it because I was too inebriated and singing. I remember, like, throwing up mid-set, like, mid-song and just, like, my ear the microphone, blah, just, just the way it was. So was it just other, like, kind of crazy bands were the ones that would want to play with you guys in those days? Uh, you know, it was hard, man. Like, the hardcore dudes didn't get it because they thought it's sky or, you know, stupid. Yeah. So we were too... too Two ska to play the hardcore bands, two punk to play the ska bands. The punks kind of accepted us more than anybody, mm-hmm. but like 
I don't know. I just think it was like, I don't know. They just thought our shit was corny or something too. So it was a little bit of both. Like, oh, we don't want this fucking, we're going to play with them, but then, you know, their shit's going to be way crazier than our set because that's how it is. And we're going to look dumb. It's just kind of how it was. You know, I don't know. Just like I said, it was like going to a hardcore show, even though we were a punk ska band, you know, which was kind of weird for that time. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I feel like once you guys went national, you know, as a as a touring act, and then you know when you got putting out records, I feel like ska kids embraced you, but um, and punks too. But before that, like ska kids, not so much. When in those early days, no, no, we were we were we were we were not cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's understandable, man. We were we were destroying something they loved. <laughs> <laughs> I, I enjoy that a little bit. Do you remember the first time playing with a band that was in like a similar vein to the machines? Uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of them, man. There really was. Um, let me think. Oh, probably, I remember we, well, we met less than Jake probably on their very first tour. Yeah. You know what I mean? I remember just being like, I don't know who the fuck they are. Someone's like, oh, they're a punk ska band. Like same with like Skank and Pickle. Those dudes are, that whole Skank and Pickle crew was always awesome to us. Yeah. Um, and you know, they were kind of crazy too. They weren't just ska. So, you know, they had songs like, you know, I'm Hulk Hogan. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> they had some crazy stuff. So, um, I remember, you know, playing with Pickle and, and Less Than Jake and being like, oh, there's other people around the country that are doing kind of what we're doing. You know, the rudiments for sure out in Cali. You know, uh, I remember like, I remember seeing the Blue Meanies for the first time. That shit was just crazy. You know what I mean? Those they were fantastic. Uh, he, I don't understand why they're not more mentioned in the history of Scott. Probably because they just got so weird in the end that people don't consider them a Scott band. But man, those first dude pave the world and full throttle and all that shit's awesome. Oh man, it's so good, dude. I think that's the main thing that you just touched on right there is that they're they weren't just a ska band like they had ska in their music but they were so much more than that and they were so intense and oh yeah i found them fucking terrifying like i thought they were like the scariest band ever yeah because they're fucking psychopaths (laughs) yeah (laughs) billy spunk's awesome (laughs) oh yeah but so so scary yeah dude they're the trippy dudes man they're all cool though they're all cool but yeah they're definitely trippy So the first time you went on tour, um, you guys came out to California, right? From and was it Skank and Pickle or Rudiments that brought you out? We just did it DIY, dude, straight up. We didn't tour with anybody. We like booked all our booked all our own thing. We did play with the Rudiments uh, in uh, at the Berkeley Square in uh, Berkeley on that on that tour, but uh, no, we just like you know did the whole book your own fucking life thing grabbed the grabbed the book and called a bunch of people yeah. and went so yeah we didn't tour anyone we just played random shows i think the only other two states on that tour was uh was nevada and uh in chicago <laughs> it was all it was all it was all cali <laughs> it was all cali and then you know those other two shows ridiculous when you were making phone calls for those book your own fucking life uh like booking how would you guys go about doing the phone call part? Uh, well, usually Derek called up everybody, and surprisingly, we threw a lot of people. There were a lot of those numbers were good, you know, which is not 
not the case I hear a lot, but we got a hold yeah. of a lot of people, man. And it was just kind of like, you know, well, I mean, you, you didn't know it was going to happen. You're like, okay, well, I got a show. We'll see if it's, if it's happening when we get there. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, you know, like you go all the way halfway across the country and hope that, you know, people did put on the show, you know, and usually, usually they, they did, you know, yeah. you had to have a lot of faith in people, man. I'd booked three book your own fucking life tours for my band back in those days. And there was only one show where we got there and it was just like, what, yep. what are you talking about? You guys, we, we didn't, we didn't confirm that you were playing or something like that. You know, like we got that whole thing. And we, we were like, we, we played in Texas and then we had a show in like, um, I can't remember the name of the city, but it was in like uh, West Louisiana. And uh, then we were playing in Mississippi the next night. We, so we get to this town and this, it was just like, there was a show happening, but like we weren't on it for some reason. And we were a dick about it, you know? But uh, yeah, that was the only time that ever happened. I never had any of the like yeah, others like, oh, there's no show or just show up and nobody's there. Yeah, I think the, the only bad show I think that we had was maybe, uh, what was that? I think it was in Fresno. And uh, dude, it was like a total meth house. And then, uh, so we go to their their house first because we got there kind of early. And they're like, "All right, well, this is where the venue is." We go to the venue and do it. Just tons of Nazi skinheads. Yeah, that was the only really bad one in that tour. That one was just like, yeah, one, we're not going to sleep in the meth house. Two, pack or shit, get the fuck out of here because there's a shit ton of Nazis. Like, there's no way we're gonna. Freaking get pretty fuck killed. So, <laughs> yeah. One dude was uh, the drummer of one of the bands from Arizona was suffering from dementia, and he thought that he thought that Dan or no, he thought I think it was I think he thought Derek had talked shit about him, and he's like, I don't even I don't even know who you are. Like, I wish I could remember the name of the band. Sorry. And the guy is just flipping out and like, sorry, man, he hears voices. That was in the meth house. The other band that was playing with us that night. It's just like, oh, this is gonna be good. <laughs> we, we uh, no, it was zero tolerance, zero tolerance from Arizona. And uh, when we get there, and the guy's like, "I'm sorry, man," like he's trying to apologize to Derek. I was like, "What the fuck? Dude, that show is crazy." So you played the show though. Oh yeah, well we were already in, man. We had all our gear in. Uh, zero tolerance opened up, and we played. Then the generics from Arizona played as well, which was a really good band. And then uh right around the time we're like setting up to play it was like oh shit there's like there's fucking what at least 10 11 12 13 like i don't know about 15 bouncies oh boy like oh yeah man <laughs> that's just so weird yeah we were like waiting for the train wreck to happen like when the generics played and we're like well let's see what happens we got all our shit out of the club at least it's the man so yeah, so you bolted as soon as you guys were done, sort of thing. We, you know what, the generics asked us to stay because I think they were a little bit worried too, and they like they didn't, they needed someone to be on their side. <laughs> so we we kind of stayed, and we we did you know we didn't get paid. It was that was the only bad show that we had. In the book your own fucking life. Besides that, everything went really well. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, you know it's funny because you, you know like you're you're going to Gilman Street, the Promised Land back then, right? Like that was like that was kind of how it was. Did you play Gilman and Berkeley Square on that tour? Yep. Funny, right? They're not even far from each other. No. The, the, shows, the shows were quite a few days apart. I remember that. Like, they were quite a few days apart, but 
Berkeley Square. It was 21 and up, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, it's it's a Chinese immersion preschool now. Oh, wow. All right. <laughs> All right. Yeah. It's weird to drive by it. Yeah. No, I, I think, or 18 and up. Oh, it was 18 and up, wasn't it? Yeah. That's yeah, what it was. I think it was 18 and up. So I think they wanted us to play a bar show, which the rudiments wanted to, to do that. You know, and, and, you know, we were more on the page of like, we're, we're kind of more on that, like, DIY kind of Gilman tip because that's kind of what was going on here at the time too you know a lot of people don't get it we have, we have a place here called the Trumbull or the Trumbull Plex and it's like it might be just as old as Gilman maybe not as old it's close to almost as old as Gilman still doing punk shows what was your impression of Gilman so you you know there's this, this legacy and this like you know icon it's like an iconic name but what did you think of when you stepped in there it was fantastic man um jesse tuesday from blatz booked it uh he booked our show very nice dude uh it was cool man it was everything that it should be like we were playing there's you know trans people living their life how they wanted to at the show and black kids and white kids and crusty kids and ska kids and and the show the show was wild we played with the riot girl band spit boy which were fantastic oh yeah yeah i love them yeah they, they will yeah yeah still to this day i love them like it was us spit boy uh ah oh, shit man bleed i think with hardcore band and then uh yeah it was bleed and then uh that emo band policy of three and that was the show and it was fucking all inclusive and great. Everyone was cool to each other. Everyone danced all night. You wouldn't think that that would work. It was hardcore band, emo band, riot girl punk band, and this punk ska band. And it was totally awesome. Like, super good. Whole show. Fantastic. I hope when shows come back, that shows are more like that again. Yeah, I mean, we really got there and we're like, dude, this is awesome. Like, this is how shows should be. The thing I love about Gilman is like, you go to Gilman show now or, you know, back before pandemic and it's still like a lot of the audience is like young, weird punk kids. Like it's like, they're still the bulk of the audience. And I think that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's how it should be. It shouldn't be a bunch of old people that grew up with it. Yeah, man. I, I you know, I think it, it has its place in, in both ways. Like, you know, I, you, yeah, yeah. you got the old crew and you got the young crew, but punk rock is always, dude, it's, it's, it's a youth movement, man. It's, it's gotta stay. It's yeah. gotta stay a youth movement or, things are going to stagnate and that's what i love about like the new ska scene really like the next generation of people playing ska it's like to me it's you know you got some curmudgeons who aren't stoked on it me i'm like dude this is rad like these are new kids doing how they want addressing what they want and like it you know what i mean and there's someone else picking up the torch and making it better you know and and it's all younger people i like it yeah i like it too what bands are you into right now uh of course i love cat bite Hell yeah. It's fucking phenomenal, phenomenal band. Great people. Um, play a lot with We Are the Union. Great people. But then again, we were kind of like Michigan. Yeah. Family. Mm-hmm. family. So uh, I love what Still Alive in Chicago is doing. Yeah, they're rad. Um, they're a little bit older than the crowd out there, but they're, they're still pretty young. You know, um, I, I dig what they're doing a lot. I like a lot of the, um, a lot of the, the newer stuff that's like the, the people who are playing it like you know even a more uh traditional style it's awesome too you know yeah but then you know then you have like the old guard too like man the, the slackers and the aggro lights are still phenomenal yeah you know what yeah, I mean? they, they, they're still great yeah. yeah 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 so still got hepcat killing it when they play oh yeah you know? yeah 
I wish I could go to Supernova. It's just so far away. But uh, playing that, so. uh, let me tell you, it is the best festival I have ever played. It probably always will be. It is. It's just like a big party picnic, man. Like I can't explain it any other way. It's not like, oh, the bands are all backstage behind a fence. Like everyone is just hanging out with each other, meeting each other. If you're not meeting, you know, if you've never met, like a lot of people are just meeting each other. It's crazy, man. It's such a good vibe, man. Mm-hmm. It's cool. Yeah, I got, I got to go somewhere. Yeah. Just, yeah, I highly recommend it, man. The vibe is entirely different than any festival you'll go to. That's nice. Yeah. I'm not like a big festival fan, but yeah, like a, like a festival, like the way you describe it definitely appeals to me. Doesn't feel like you're at one. Yeah. And that's what I like about it. I want to talk about the story behind you guys getting signed to Hollywood. We talked about this for my book and I just, I think it's such an amazing story. Let's start with you guys were getting um, different people were interested in you, right? You were getting different labels were, were reaching out to you. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't know, like, oh, fuck, I can't remember anymore, like, Sony and shit like that, or whatever, I don't know who the fuck, we met a bunch of people, and, dude, they were just kind of, I don't know, everything you'd expect a record label, you know, slimeball to be, is, so to speak, I'm not saying that all people are slimeball that work at record labels, but it was like that stereotypical mm-hmm. person, you know what I mean, that, yeah, you know, and, and it's just, it was a pretty big turnoff, man, anytime we've seen any, Anytime we met these people, usually it was a pretty big turnoff. Did you feel like they did not understand you guys or your music at all? No, dude, they didn't understand it whatsoever. You know, we we had the uh, the, the second strike against us because you got to think like, you know, we were a Scott Punk band. Yeah, okay, so Green Day is big, but that does not mean anything about, you know, a Scott Punk band. Like, you, you have no clue what the fuck you're talking about. Like, you, you don't know anything about this at all. You know what I mean? That's what I felt like most of these people had zero clue. They were trying to sign the next Green Day. I don't know, man. It's it was it was weird. It was a weird time. Like I think everyone was looking for that for that, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like the the ska signings definitely came off the back of punk rock blowing up. Yeah, man. Well, what's interesting is like all, all the bands that were on the radio, like Real Big Fish, um, you know, Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. These guys were punk ska, but you guys were punk, like yeah, much more punk, you know, than those bands. Nothing, nothing against those bands; those are all great bands. But there's definitely an edge to you guys that you guys that was different than the other bands that were signed. Yeah, I mean, like I said, you know, we we fit in more in the in that, you know, that culture of that the punk rock culture more than anything, you know, or the genre, whatever you want to call it, but. So I guess that's why they're coming to look at us. But I remember you, you just didn't think that a punk band with ska was ever going to be on, you know, uh, you know, MTV or the, or the radio because it hadn't happened. And then I think the other thing that kind of um, triggered it, too, is I remember like, like driving my car into work and then. Uh, I only had a radio that just, it just had a radio in the car. I didn't have any way to listen to anything. It was just the radio. And I remember the local radio station. I didn't know who the fuck Sublime even was. And I remember uh, Sublime came on the radio. I'm like, who the fuck is this? It's like fucking Sky Reggae. Like, I don't even, even know who the fuck this is. I haven't even heard of this band. Like, but it was that, it was 
that's I don't practice Santeria song or whatever the fuck. No, it was a date rape. That was the first official. Oh, is that what it was? I don't yeah. remember, man. I, that might have been what it was. I don't remember. I just remember hearing like a ska band on the radio. It, it was weird because it was date rape, which was like three years old. Somehow it got into rotation. And I think because the, sh- the song was like shocking or, you know, whatever it, people started requesting it and then it blew up. But yeah, those guys, those guys had been around a while, but they didn't really tour. So they weren't really known outside of Southern California. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, so, no, no, no one gave a fuck about them here, you know? Yeah. And, and what, like that whole California vibe didn't compute to us here whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And what was really crazy is I remember we had played with Rancid on their first tour. Uh, I don't even, I think all they had, I don't even think Let's Go was even out yet, actually. Maybe they just got done recording Let's Go, but we we played with them on their first album, their first tour here in Detroit. And they were punk. Yeah. Right? And then and then Let's Go came out and it was punk as fuck. Like that record's punk. It's so good. It's like one of my favorite albums this day, both those records. But then all of a sudden they made a ska record, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. it was like, oh shit! Like the dudes from Opera Ivy are doing a ska record. Like Rancid's gonna do some ska, and it was like, boom! It's on the on MTV. We're like, holy shit! What are dudes that we like are like our people? Kind of like they're on MTV. Like they're all of a sudden on the radio. Like that was the moment where like it made sense when people were trying to sign us. Like oh. I mean, that was a little bit after I think we got signed, maybe, or close to the time we got signed, I think, when that album dropped. But I remember thinking, all right, okay, so maybe they they must have smelled something in the air a little bit before, like, we even knew what the hell was going on. Because, you know, bands like Sublime or, or, or you know, or Rancid putting out a Scott-ish album, you know. I, I don't know. I just, those are just, like, my recollections of how things were starting to happen, you know. Yeah, it was Sublime, and then Time Bomb happened shortly after. That song blew up, yeah. Yeah, Time Bomb, man, yeah. Yeah, we were just like, oh, dude, it blew up so crazy, and it it was strange to us. It was at one, for one, never thinking, oh, man, they're going to play Sky now, all of a sudden, it's cool again, like, you know. <laughs> but but it's so, it was so fantastic. It was so good, right? It was like, dude, that dude, Time Bomb's fantastic. What a great song, and it was like, on the radio all of a sudden and it's like how the fuck is rancid on the radio oh oh rancid's on mtv like how the fuck is rancid on mtv it was it was awesome i remember in like 93 94 what it was like to be part of the ska scene i never would have imagined in a million years that it would be any of those bands would be on the radio and two years later yeah yeah and even rancid i agree like i saw rancid in their Either it was right before, or right after. Let's go. They were just a punk band. They 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 came, they came with a fan base because of Op Ivy, but it wasn't like they were a big band. They were a big right. underground band. Yeah. So to think that all these bands blowing up totally, totally shocked me. Even No me Doubt too. blowing up. I was a fan of No Doubt. You know, before they put out Tragic Kingdom, and the fact that that album blew up totally shocked me too. Yeah, man, it's just like I don't think anyone really saw it coming, dude. I, I, I didn't. Yeah, you know, punk, yes, punk, punk or ska or just ska. No, no, not in a million years, right? <laughs> yeah, you guys kind of paid no attention, really, to, or you know, you just were kind of, you kind of like whatever to these guys. But Julian Raymond, that's his name from Hollywood. You, you kind of heard him out. Like, wh- what was it about him that you and and tell me about meeting him? Uh, yeah. So like randomly, some dude 
named Julian Raymond uh, calls Dan's mom's house because that's the only way you can get a hold of anyone back then. No one had uh, you know cell phones, but the number Dan's number was somehow I think maybe it was on Gank for Brains, mm-hmm. or maybe it was Der- Derek's number or Dan's number. All I know is he ended up calling. I think he called Dan's house at his mom's house and was like yeah man, i want to come you know i want to see your band play do you have any books or like no nah, but we have a, a tour this summer he's like well i really want to come see you guys play now and we're like dude we don't, we don't have any shows man for like a couple months like why don't you just because it was kind of this point like you know whatever to all these people mm-hmm. and they're like why don't you just you know come see us on our own tour because we had like a like a five-week tour with buck nine that summer and uh and he's like, no, man, I, I want to, let me just come see you guys practice. We're like, yeah, okay. Like we practice in, you know, our guitar player's mom's basement in Redford. <laughs> like I was another suburb of Detroit. Like you're going to, okay, sure, dude, whatever. Yeah, fine. Yeah, come on out if you want. Fucking he flew out here and uh, came. I felt like I was a fish in a fishbowl. It's like just sitting there watching us like, play in the basement like i was i remember almost hiding behind the, the pillar in the basement pa because i didn't want to look at this dude because it, it was so weird because it was so weird you know oh yeah you know like and he, and he was like all right this is this this is good man i really dig it and we're like all right whatever um he's like i'm gonna come see you guys on tour we're like oh okay cool whatever we don't talk to him for months all of a sudden dude shows up in baltimore now the thing the, the leading up to baltimore you kind of have to have a little bit of a backstory you know we'd already been on tour for i don't know how many weeks and uh we were in georgia about two days before or three days before baltimore maybe like four days yeah i remember we didn't have a window in our van for quite a while someone broke into our van in georgia stole Derek's clothing bag <laughs> that he was touring with, yeah. which had all of our money. And we had quite a bit of money at that point, you know, a couple couple grand just, you know, between being paid and merch. And, you know, but back then that's like amazing. Everything. Yeah. Yeah. They took his bag with all his clothes, all our money. They ate our food that was in a cooler and threw it on the bench. <laughs> they took bites out of everything just to be like an <laughs> asshole. I don't know. And then they stole one of Dan's rickenbackers shit yeah dude and that was in little that's in little five points in georgia back then it wasn't nice now it's like kind of touristy but back then it was rough neighborhood yeah broad daily broke into our van stole our shit so we had to drive for days with no window i remember getting rained on going up the east coast and i was sitting in the driver in the passenger seat and just getting soaked trying to hang a shirt over the window so we get wet y'all didn't even just duct tape some cardboard up in that thing Nah, we were dumb <laughs> and and we get to baltimore and it's awesome and the tour was pretty good that we had played you know but us and buck and i was pretty good man it wasn't bad and uh we get up to baltimore and it's like a friday or saturday night right dude nobody shows up they didn't advertise the show at all nobody shows up to this 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 show except for maybe five people in julian Raymond and his wife Dory. Right? The people are being assholes at this bar. We're obviously not getting paid. So me and our roadie took shit and we 
picked them up and hit them everywhere through the bar. Like I was taking it, I just barehanding, throwing like my shit under the rugs and smashing rugs, like those tall smoking ashtrays. We're throwing our shit in the ashtrays, <laughs> and we we played we played our set, <laughs> right? We played our set, and you know we played. We always played it normal as usual. We played crazy, you know. And uh, Julian is like, I can't believe you played that fucking crazy in front of five people and me and my wife. And then you fucking did that. I don't know if you'll ever remember it, but he was just tripped out that we were doing shit like that. And uh, and uh, God, man, I I don't I don't know if he said much about it, but he's probably maybe I don't think he even said anything about it. I think he was just like, what the fuck are these dudes doing? Like, probably didn't know what to say. Right. Long story <laughs> short, show's over. We don't get paid. And he's like, all right, I'll put you guys up in a super sick hotel, Derek. We're going shopping for clothes because <laughs> he had no clothes. And uh, he took us out to dinner and he was like, listen, man, just I'm going to fly you out to L.A. L- let me record four songs for the label. We'll do it in a sick studio. No, no, no strings attached. We'll try to pitch this stuff to these record label goons because they all suck at Hollywood. That's, that is his words. And in and, and a worst case scenario, I'll sneak the tapes out. We don't sign you. I'll give you the tapes, and you got a great sounding seven inch. And we were just like, "All right." And so we flew out there, and that was it. So it was like a really nice studio, then, right? Yeah, it was funny, man, because I remember like walking in, and they're like, "The engineer is like, oh, this is where you two record rattle and hum." And I was like, "I, think I was already a little bit drunk." I was like, "I don't give a fuck." <laughs> <laughs> what four songs did you record? Then do you remember? Yeah, break the glass, new girl. Uh, God, did we do? I honestly, that's all I can remember. Oh, or man, I don't remember. I'm sorry. I know it was Break the Glass and New Girl were two of them for sure. I, I can't, I can't remember what the other two were. Sorry. Oh, SOS. SOS. Okay. Solid four songs. Yeah. He showed this to um, his boss or whatever. And then you guys signed pretty quick after that or what? Uh, yeah, man. So like, we didn't even like, we didn't think we were gonna get signed. I remember like hopping in a Volkswagen bus and going to staying in Las Vegas and playing bass for a hardcore band because I had met we had played Vegas and I became friends with this guy Jeff Dean. He's like one of my best friends this day. And uh he was like, Hey, I'm gonna move to Detroit, we're gonna start a band, but you're gonna stay with me for a while in, in Vegas and play bass from a hardcore band. I was like, Yeah, sure. So I remember like getting done with four songs and hopping in his van and going to Vegas. Like I didn't care about mixing, I didn't care about meeting the the record label people like nothing i just took off and uh and the funny part is i think those dudes flew home too and uh i guess they liked it <laughs> yeah i know julian had heard because he was walking by someone's cubicle in hollywood records and someone in the cubicle like an intern was playing the skank for brains record in their cubicle uh-huh. and julian just happened to be walking by and heard us and stopped and was like Fans, this and they and that's how he found us. Wow, oh, okay, yeah, wow, yeah. So, you you guys took Julian up on the offer because of the um, that you thought you're just gonna get an EP out of it. Was that what kind of why you said yes? That, that is why we said yes, but we actually felt like this dude was not your typical record label dude person, mm-hmm. person. But yes, a lot of it was like, sweet, this guy seems pretty honorable. He probably will steal the tapes and give them to us. 
like he was pretty solid he was pretty straightforward about stuff you know and i don't think he liked all the people that worked at hollywood so he, yeah. he was going to do whatever he wanted kind of that's kind of how we felt about him and we kind of liked that so did you re-record did you start from scratch when you um recorded destruction yeah those four songs that we did those came on came out on the record and then uh dude we ended up so i feel like that was you know fall ish mm -hmm. when we went and we were recording by christmas i remember there was a christmas parade in la and i was like it's so fucking weird there's no snow. <laughs> i heard now, this is something that you and i didn't talk about but i heard that you guys were given a deal and there was like a certain amount of money attached to it and you guys basically spent everything on the recording and it was like um is that is that true two hundred fifty thousand dollars are you serious <laughs> you spent that all on the recording so much fucking money yeah yeah that's what happens when you stay stay in super swanky places and do you're in a studio that you know rattle and hum was done in <laughs> the mixing place was just a you know the mixing was jerry finn so that was like super expensive yeah pretty insane like, how did you spend this money? How, was it like a long process? Um, no, it wasn't that long a process. I think maybe a month, you know? So we had we had super swanky apartments and, you know, and or maybe we, I think we had rooms at the Roosevelt Hotel the whole time, actually. I don't think we had uh, apartments that time. I think we had like, we stayed in Hollywood mm -hmm. at the Roosevelt the whole time, which is a pretty nice place. Um, and it was like we could walk to the studio from it. So I think that's what we did for destruction. But you know, you've got all your your dudes you gotta pay for too, like the engineer. I can only imagine that 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 room that we recorded and had to have been, you know, what a couple grand a day, twenty five hundred, maybe even more than that. It could have been like seven, eight hundred thousand dollars a day. Who fucking knows? But like the the thing was is we were just like, Well, we're we're never gonna we're never going to be big. We're never going to sell records. This is ridiculous. If you make good sounding record, you know, and uh, I don't know, man, I guess we made a record people like, it's kind of crazy, but like our, our, our thing was like, cool. We get a cool record out. It'll be out and fucking we're never paying this money back. So fucking whatever, we're never gonna make money. Like let's spend it. I really feel like um, one of the things I like about the record is the guitar tone. Phenomenal guitar tone. I don't know if you have any perspective on the, kind of getting that tone. Was that a process? Yeah, it was. That was that's where a good producer comes in, man. Like that's all Julian. He's really good with guitars. I mean, there's just a lot of dumb stuff on there, like just open notes ringing and you know letting it like the sustain go on, like like there's like three freaking guitars doing that thing. You know what I mean? Like that's what they're doing it's just it's i think the only amps they used was a, a jcm 800 or jcm 900 and then uh they used either a ac30 or a matchless 2x12 for the clean i can't remember on that record which i think it was the, the matchless they used one of those old matchless ones that were like uh green tolex it's pretty nice i can't think of the model number sorry but like they just did a million guitars i remember thinking no one's ever going to believe this. This isn't how we sound live. <laughs> like, <laughs> right? But like, that's, he knew what he was doing. He was like, all right, you know, here, here's the Les Paul. Now ring this note out for the chorus. You know, they would build, they were building stuff too. It's making sure that the choruses were way louder and bigger. Like the thing about that record is like, 
it is produced and sounds punk still. It retains a sounding of like a punk sound, which I feel like is a weird balance that is hard to come by, especially uh, of that era. If you look at any of the ska record, punk ska records or the punk records, bands didn't usually have that, like the balance where both were happening at the same time. Yeah, I think the cool thing was is Julian was also kind of letting us do whatever the fuck we wanted. He He, he just knew that he had to make something sellable or to a, a radio department so as long as he had a big kind of chorusy hook he didn't really care about what we were doing here he kind of believed in us anyways you know and that's i dude i'm still in touch with him to this day we're still really good friends and he'll probably tell you the same thing he's like i believed in what you're doing i didn't really question what you guys are doing because it was completely natural i mean he didn't really he didn't really change a ton of this shit like to our songs like you know the original break the glass sounded nothing like it did on that album so that wasn't julian that was dan and Derek rearranging it and making it different i remember when he flew back out to, to detroit to kind of rehearse let's see he's like oh this is way better like now you know what i mean like so he didn't really do a ton to change our songs yeah what he did was he made it sound really good but just the way that you guys or him or whatever, like thickened it up in a way, like usually thickening up punk rock takes the punk rock part out of it in a way, you know? Sure. But it's thick, but still punk. Like that tone is so good. Yeah. I don't, I think it was, uh, I think it was only those three amps, three amps that I mentioned and um, uh, a less, a less, or I think it was SG, no, Les Paul maybe. Uh, his, his Rickenbacker and just a million different, messing around with the settings and messing around in the, the control room with it and then playing parts and adding parts and adding parts, adding parts, like <laughs> just more and more, more and more. Like, you know what I mean? Like Julian's like, all right, now play this over it to Dan. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Now, now play the not next play this over it. Like, like that's, you know, he knew how to do that. Wow. That's cool. And the drums too. Yeah. Well, I mean, that dude really taught me how to sing too. He's like a great vocal coach. Oh yeah. So. Oh yeah great vocal coach what sort of things did he say to you get good takes well he taught me how to sing in key i <laughs> 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 just dumb stuff like oh you're going high with the note man uh raise your eyebrows raise your eyebrows when you go to hit the high note like just dumb shit like that you know but it worked yeah it's weird when you're a punk band or you, you know you play clubs and then you record like you don't necessarily even know that you're singing in tune or out of tune until yeah. you're in a studio and you can hear things in a way that you can never hear things before then. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, for sure. For sure. Now it's kind of like at that time, I was finally starting to come into my own too, a little bit when it comes to like how I wanted to sing, you know, I, I didn't know what the hell I was doing yet on Skank for Brains or Green World, you know, or the demo or the seven inch. Like I hadn't really found how I wanted to do it yet. And right around the time we were writing for Destruction, I was finally starting to like that Buck Nine tour really like made us a band like i would say mm -hmm. that like during that tour we really finally started to, to develop like as a band to kind of like have our our own sound in general like on that tour because we were writing some of that stuff like why we're on to on that tour like that era i mean you know how would writing on tour work out like we, we were trying to play some of the songs actually that we were writing a few weeks beforehand on that tour we'd throw them in the set and try to play them so i'm sure you can find some videos of us from that era and there's probably like really weird versions of you know sos and stuff break the glass probably too or new girl like any stuff like that was already 
being messed with. I think the only song that we actually didn't have written for uh, Destruction that we wrote in the studio was Our Time. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, me and Royce kind of wrote that song last minute because they were like, ah, oh, we need some more, we need some more like songs on this record. And so me and Royce just like blasted that one out together. That's that's a solid tune, yeah. Yeah, that was the only one that was written out there, really like you know what I mean? That was the one. So everything else was already done before we got there. Like Julian flew out for a couple of days out to Detroit before we went in the studio for that record. He was just, he didn't really do much besides get us to sing things a little better. And he started coming up with ideas on how to build those guitar parts and make it bigger. So, okay, you guys recorded a couple, you guys shot a few music videos and it came out recently that uh, Nick Offerman worked on one of the SOS video because he wrote about it in his memoir. <laughs> I don't even know who Nick Offerman is, but someone told me that. You don't know? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Amazing. I mean, you've never seen Parks and Rec? No. Okay, well, there you go. Mike from Bad Time has a Nick Offerman uh, poster in his bathroom. <laughs> That's funny. I didn't start <laughs> watching TV until uh pandemic. So Really? Yeah, I don't really, I don't, I don't really watch TV much. So you so that you have no idea uh, what he what he did in the video or any memory of this guy at, at for the video shoot? No, no, not at all. I was also really drunk in that video. The, what you don't see is there's a huge fucking whole bunch of uh, old English 40 ounce bottles sitting where I'm singing behind those like crushed cars that were crushed in like they surrounded us with like crushed cars up to those squares are. Mm -hmm. like surrounding the band and like we just dude, we were just drinking fucking old english all night uh what you don't know is a lot of people don't pay attention to is that's actually brooks wackerman in the video playing drums oh really yeah derek what derek was in his super punk face and didn't want to be on magazine covers or in promo shots so you see promo shots occasionally with a hat in front of his face or him turned backwards he was like kind of going through this he, he, he has a lot of like social anxiety so i don't attribute it to like he was trying to be too cool for school i think it was just too much for him too soon and and he was like i am not gonna fucking do another video i'm not gonna be i'm not gonna do that they're just like that's cool but we we kind of have to go do this now it's set up and we're gonna go do it and so we actually since brooks was a friend of ours and he lived near there that's him playing drones tell me so the concept is okay so uh, sos is like the song is talking about how, um, you know, there's all these problems and people not getting along and, and, you know, fucked up shit in the world. So the concept is you have like all these cars running into each other and there's like they each car represents like a positive or negative thing like hope or fear or whatever. Yep, exactly. Did you guys shoot that? It looks like you shot it like late at night or something. Oh, God, it was horrible. Yeah, we so we drove all the way from Vegas or wait, no, we flew in from Vegas. Not a big deal. We started shooting that thing first thing in the morning, right? We had to be on set or whatever the, you want to call it in the junkyard. And then, dude, we didn't get done until sun up. Oh, man. And then, oh, it's, it was so grueling, right? But like it was, dude, we were super tired. And then Derek and the rest of our crew had drove from Vegas to LA and we had to go play a free in store at, um, Oh fuck! It was like some K Rock thing. 
at some some big store. I don't know what the Tower Records or something. We played in the parking lot, and we were like, all I just remember my legs hurt so bad because I had shin splints super bad at the time. No sleep. You have to get up, play this thing early, and everyone at K Rock and and the Tower Records are just like annoying us. Like we're just getting to the point where, like, dude, we don't want to fucking, I don't want to play this shit. Like, this is dumb. Like, dude, we just all wanted to go to bed. We hadn't gone to bed, you know. And it is what it is. It's like this is crying about some dumb shit, really. But uh, there's a lot of people at the show. It was to promote, I think, destruction, uh, the next single, probably. So we're, you know, we're doing this thing for K Rock, and uh, I remember we're like, all right play all the songs grindcore fast as we can <laughs> i'm gonna scream them all i'm gonna gur- gurgle them out Derek wrote k-cock on his chest took off his shirt wrote k-cock and then you know before we played <laughs> we're like hey do us a favor and just steal whatever you want from tower records like fuck, and fuck, <laughs> fuck this place dude like it's just a bad it's just a bad experience that whole day and night of like shooting that video and then having to do that thing the next day you know and then having to play a show that night and it was just like all he wanted to do was go to bed <laughs> so everyone was just fucking being grumpy ass bastards but pretty funny so the show was great you're saying <laughs> yeah it was, it was pretty funny <laughs> and i guess people did end up stealing rumor has it <laughs> sick and yeah and that was kind of i think the end of us in k-rock pretty much yeah didn't they tell you that um then they ban you or say they were going to ban you or something. They pulled us off the airwaves. <laughs> oh, man. We um, we talked about that from my book. And there's a really great, great quote I would love to get you to expand upon. Um, you said that um, when you're a bunch of fucking punk rock kids and all of a sudden your shit's on the radio, our reaction is to reject it and be assholes. Pretty much. So it was weird then to suddenly be like in the main quote unquote mainstream and and within the industry then. Yeah. Yeah. It was really strange. Like we weren't part of the industry, you know, and I don't think that we understood that we had to be a part of the industry, but then you had to be part of the industry. And then it was like, fuck this shit. Like, but we signed up for it. Right. Like, you know, it was, but you know, at the same time, like it just stuff happens so fast and it makes me feel bad for a lot of younger musicians that have probably gone through this sort of thing. It's, It's like, Dude, you just get launched into that world so quickly sometimes. It's like, you know, it's, it's weird to be, you know, on MTV or, you know, on the radio. I'm not saying it's not cool. It's just, it's a strange thing to be in like magazines all of a sudden all over the place. And it's like, it's, it's weird. It's, 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 it seems like it wouldn't be stressful, but it, it is stressful when it's something that you never believed in or understood or, didn't really want to be a part of it, and then we're stupid enough to sign up to be part of it. You know what I mean? So it's definitely like we remember back then too. I was like, oh, that band's fucking sell out. Like that's how like it was thought about back then too. You know, and 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 we were we sold out the fucking the biggest man of them all, fucking Walt Disney, right? Like that's that's it's a weird thing. Like you know, you, you get really self conscious about like stuff like that. You know, but when you're young, you're also making these decisions. Like yeah, whatever, fucking do it. Like yeah, sure, whatever, like fuck it. But, you know, being able to handle it at that age or not knowing how to handle it because you've never even been around anything like that is, uh, it's pretty overwhelming, you know what I mean? 
and you get overwhelmed enough it's like all systems shut down and just fucking fire back at people instead was there um any consideration of not taking the deal or was there any debate about like oh do we really want to do this or did you just were so cynical about anything happening that you didn't really think about the ramifications yeah we didn't think about the ramifications at all it's just like oh whatever we're you know let's just take their money and run like fucking put out a good record like did no you know what i mean it was very much like yeah we thought a little bit like yeah i'm sure a few people will point call salts but we didn't really give a fuck back then we no no we kind of just didn't care but we did care once we did it to ourselves <laughs> but like you know we were so flying by the seat of our pants it was just like dude we're no, no one's ever gonna like our band we were never gonna be big let's just make a really awesome sounding record like we'll probably break up in a year anyways you know what i mean like yeah you were getting older we're not gonna fucking be doing this like it, it just was very like you, you just don't you're thinking about that day you're not thinking about tomorrow like at that age you know what i mean and it, it i don't know it just it, we weren't thinking much about it we're just like yeah for fucking whatever let's do it you know so you weren't like oh you know you didn't have stars in your eyes thinking you guys were going to be big rock stars it wasn't that sort of thing at all God no, Scott Punk, man. Come on. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. It's weird. Yeah. And then you guys, you guys did like what three or four more albums on the label, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We did. I don't know why, because you know, K-Rock wouldn't play our music anymore. So I don't know why they even kept us on. But yeah. We kind of made amends with them, you know, later because I guess like that that Dr. Drew guy wanted us someone booked us on his show. We went on a show and it kind of made amends a little bit with k-rock people years later but i don't know why hollywood continued to even work with us because it's not like they could get us you know on the radio those people hated us in k-rock at the time like a lot of people know i mean they can kind of set the playlist standard for the whole country at the time yeah definitely yeah if if, if you were in k-rock rotation other markets would pick up on it too yeah so once we were like off it was like oh well, that's that you know what was your uh dr drew loveline experience like it was chill. It was fun, man. And people were, you know, you had people answering, asking serious questions at times. And then, you know, then you get, you know, maybe one dumbass caller, but it was like a lot more serious than I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought it'd be some goofy ass, you know, kid calling in, like fucking with them or asking some stupid ass crazy sex question or something. It was like, it was actually kind of like serious problems. I was like, holy shit, this is, uh, all right, this is kind of heavy. And like, did you have good advice? Probably not. yeah that'd be my guess i don't really remember after this k-rock thing did you guys continue the pattern of sort of um pushing back on the industry stuff for a while or did you change your behavior a little bit oh please push back even worse battle hymns was next yeah yeah that's the most unsellable record there is on a major probably like you know they had one good song that they could maybe even attempt to push to the radio the rest of it was just super fucking crazy angry fast songs some of the songs are like you know 30 seconds you know the funny part was is we had another budget of uh i think two hundred fifty thousand for that one the budget didn't really change we're like cool let's record this album as fast as we can and then pocket all the rest of the money that's what we did that's the way to do it yeah i think i saw that you tracked all the vocals in like one day oh yeah dude no two days vocals all done in two days and then all the guitars and bass were in a day and drums were in a day think so it was like four days total or something weird like that so you know here's your 250 grand oh wait we're done 
well, what? Uh, and then I remember like handing in the record and they were just like, I remember playing it for like the record label people. And I was just like, this is fucking hilarious, dude. They did not know <laughs> what to think. Like to us, it was fucking hilarious. But they, you know, they did have Give, which was a pretty sellable song. But like, I mean, none of the record, none of that record was sellable at that time back then, you know, like it's just a, it sounds like a freaking hardcore record, you know, or crust punk record with just some sky. Like, there's nothing sellable. That record, I don't even know if that record clocks in at 30 minutes. I don't even know if it does. It's got the crazy, like, um, you know, Soviet looking Russian worker on the cover. <laughs> it's called Battle Games. <laughs> like, dude, and thanks for the money. Goodbye. Like, it was like, you, you know what I mean? Like, we knew, we knew that K Rock didn't want any of you. So, why the fuck would we cater to it, anyways? You know, it was more of us rejecting everything and being like, all right, well, all these ska bands are getting big now and they're playing like this poppy ass fucking god awful ska, most of them. And it was like, fuck that. We're going to, we're going to make some pissed off shit. So, did they ever give you like a feedback? Like, uh, we don't really want to do this. We want you to do something else. Or they were just like, doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, we used to do home. So, fuck it. <laughs> but they continued to work with you. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I think everyone got fired at that point after that record. Not because of us, just because those labels that they do, they have this weird cycle of like a couple people in for a couple of years and they all get fired, right? Julian was consistent because he had so many hits with that label with bands like Fastball and shit. Like, so they, they, I almost think that he was going to be like, the VP of the label at some point, but you know, he, he saw the writing on the wall and split himself. He didn't get fired. He left. You know, they kind of just like we kind of became the band that was on Hollywood forever because because of Julian. He's like, I don't give a fuck until they get rid of me or fire me or I quit. Like, you're my band. You're one of them. Like he's just like, I don't care what they say. <laughs> so, you know, he kept us on. Not saying we wanted to be on, but you know, we were kind of like again we're just always like yeah whatever fucking cool whatever let's just do it like kind of how it was yeah i mean it's hard to say no if you're getting money and distribution and they're not like requiring you to alter anything if they're accepting you as you i mean like why would you say no to that oh my god we'd let them dry and never paid them back like we we i remember being in europe for seven and a half eight weeks and we were like staying in squats and then bar we were sleeping in bars and clubs and like dude covering scabies and just like no money getting like a hundred bucks a night no food we'd have to eat the cheese and whatever the fuck was at the place we were playing when we got there and i remember like cut like our tour manager calling our manager being like i don't give a fuck you need to have them send us like 25 grand and they would do it and we'd be on the road in the States and we'd be like, Hey, you know what? You guys need to send us like 10 or 15 grand and they would do it. Like, <laughs> that, and that's what we did for so long. and never paid any of it back, dude. Like, you know, it's good. It was fucked up. It's crazy. The industry in the nineties seems like the, the most absurd level that the industry got to was in the nineties. Just like the amount of money that was being flushed into albums and music videos the promotion and just be, I think must be just because the CD era, they just were making such a huge profit on CDs. It was just like such huge business. And so it must've been such an absurd time to be part of that. It was bizarre, man. 
it was all of it was bizarre there's nothing not bizarre about it you know what i mean like everything about it was strange to a kid who just kind of came up in the diy punk scene like you know it, it didn't no, nothing made sense to me like <laughs> you know like I, I don't know nothing made sense you know and uh, i'm not i'm not some lawyer so i'm not gonna read this you know fucking 300 page contract i don't know what it means like whatever who cares like just stuff like that just everything seemed absurd like oh you're gonna you're gonna go do this like weird like a, a signing we're like what do you mean a signing like yeah you're gonna go to this like you know when you meet and greet like when you I was like, oh yeah, I saw the circle jerks once on a kid at a record store. That makes sense. Like it was bizarre shit, like to us to have to go into a radio station and, and talk to DJs. Like no one wants to fucking hear from the suicide machines. We don't talk about the suicide machines. Like, but we'd have to go talk to these DJs. And half of the time, these DJs are all half in the bag and fucking assholes. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it like to transition back to the world of of being on indie labels or whatever you know the, the post major label era for you guys it was a pretty big breath of fresh air because uh at the time so i'll, I'll kind of make it really quick on how we got to that uh so we did at that point uh in their eyes battle hymns had bombed i think it only sold like i think the first week it only did like eighty thousand copies i think it only ended up selling like i don't know what it was, it was to, to us it was insane i think it was like i don't know I, last i'd heard it was like three hundred fifty thousand copies or something i didn't even know what the fuck it was anymore but at the time to them it was like oh well, you only sold you know eighty thousand a week that's a failure at the time dan was a couple years older than us and he was kind of like his life was changing he's like well i don't want to work back in the factory again like i want to make a living off of this band and so i think that and smoking a lot of weed and listening to the Beatles, he was like, I'm gonna write the fucking next Beatles album. Like, and, and, and that's what he did. And like, Royce kind of followed suit. Like, Royce was kind of in the same boat. Uh, those dudes wanted to make money, and, and, and me and Derek didn't, and Derek ended up quitting. And then uh, I, you know, I stayed on board, and I remember them writing the songs, and I was just like, dude, like, these songs are fucking terrible. Uh, only more so because of your lyrics like your lyrics are shit like let me write my own lyrics to it because i don't care if they're good melodies or not which they are like these lyrics are the worst fucking lyrics ever and like oh this is my song and it's not getting changed and that's kind of like where the riff started in the band between people because Derek really quit too because he did not like dan on top of it and uh you know and so we did the self-title and I, you know and i told him and that's you know that almost killed the band and then we go to write steal this record and and right around that time uh pro tools became a thing and so they're learning how to you know use pro tools at the studio and so to me like yeah there's some good songs on that record but you know what i think it's the worst sounding record i've ever heard in my life and you can tell just because it's stagnant sounding. like they're using too much like trying to use Pro Tools too much. It just sounds really stagnant to me on Steel this record. And uh, and I also think that like those guys were trying to find their way back to writing punk. Royce wasn't, but Dan was. And me and Dan were kind of on the same page and Royce wasn't. Royce still wanted to do like a poppier song. 
because he kind of got stuck in the self-title, like liking that sort of thing. And, you know, Dan saw the writing on the wall that I told him was going to be there, which is, oh, yeah, everyone's going to hate this record. So he kind of came back and I wrangled him back in and we did that record. And that record just sounded like dog shit. I think a lot of that record's awful. It's probably my least, it's my least favorite record for sure, is uh, Steal This Record. And uh, the irony was, is we had a single, like, so we kind of made amends during the self-title with K-Rock. And the title, the, the the track, the lead off track for Steel's record was going to be The Killing Blow. Well, right when that song was about to drop in September, 9-11 happened. And everyone was too afraid at Hollywood to hand over a single called The Killing Blow to radio. And that was, that was it. So that album was dead in the water. They didn't even try to like say, hey, let's switch over real quick and retool and put out a different song which what whatever i didn't fucking care but you know dan was trying to dan was in the headspace and so was royce they're trying to like oh i want to make a living off this band now you know and uh and they, they didn't that totally bombed because of that, that situation so the band was definitely spiral spiraling downwards because of all that and you know again royce quit because he hated dan it was hard for me to keep people in the band dan he was not an easy person to be with I knew I was already starting to write really good songs for the next record. And Julian had quit and went to Capitol Records. And, and he's like, well, I think I want to take you to Capitol, but I think I'm such a peon here now because, yeah, I have a name, but I'm the new guy at Capitol. I think what's going to happen is I'll bring you guys here and you're just kind of going to get lost in those departments no one's going to care about you because you're the band i brought over with me in capital he's like but i'll do it i'll bring you guys to capital regardless but i just have a weird feeling that you know the radio department isn't going to take you guys serious or anything and at the time over the course of the years uh joe sib old friend of mine i met him on that first diy tour actually that we booked we played with wax out in las vegas his band and uh we became friends and he's always like, ah, I want to put out a record, man. I want to put out a record, man. And we're just like, yeah, yeah. And then, uh, and I was just like, you know what? We were in LA and we went and met with Julian and we're, and he told us all that stuff. And we could have went with Capitol cause he would have brought us in, but we went down to Joe's office. I said, Hey, isn't your office still on Melrose? Yeah. I'm like, I'm going to come talk to you. And we went and came talk to him and that was it, man. We switched over to side one. And and to be honest with you, I remember handing in a match and some gasoline to those guys, and they're calling us. I remember Joe calling. He's like, "Dude, you know what, man? Like, we didn't know what you're going to hand us. We didn't think it was going to be good. I mean, honestly, we didn't know what it was going to be. Maybe it'd be good. Maybe it wouldn't. You know, but this is fucking great. This record's awesome." And I was like, "Yeah, man. Like, they were awesome, and they gave us a bunch of good. They gave us a bunch of money." We went and recorded it with who we wanted to, which was Bill Stevenson and, and Jason at the Blasting Room. And we actually wrote pretty good songs. I actually really liked that record. Unmatched some guests and it was great. And yeah, what was, was. yeah, man. And, and and what was crazy is it was like that band saw a second resurgence or a third resurgence, really. Like all of a sudden people were into the band again and there was a bunch of new people into the band again and a whole new young crowd and dude, we were like kind of like it was weird. It was like a whole new like a, our own second wave or whatever of like 
the band having some sort of like i don't know like uh motion going you know what i mean like some sort of momentum very weird so it was a really good transition i actually really enjoyed being on side one those um last few albums before you guys broke up i think are strong albums i think war profiteering is killing us all kind of sucks but you know i mentioned some <laughs> gasoline i mentioned some gasoline might be my second favorite record i think honestly man it's hard it's it's hard i some days it's my favorite one like i i really love that record and that was what was really cool is we brought rich in to play bass at that time and rich used to be in a band with ryan v our drummer who had been drumming for the band for years at this point they used to be in a sweet like punk ska band here in detroit called bourgeois filth so those two played so incredibly well as it as a, a backbone in the band man like it just made the band way better than it had ever been so what did you do in the 15 years between albums i had nothing <laughs> <laughs> i don't know man like what like i don't know work work the day job and or night's job and then uh you had some other bands right my i had, I had a bunch of other bands i had one band that got kind of some notoriety i was in this band called hellmouth for a while uh put out an album on ferret album on paper and plastic and then uh on another east coast hardcore label after that but put out kind of a lot of records toured quite a bit played with a lot of crazy ass bands like uh mayhem from norway and stuff like that nice. so it was the opposite ends of the spectrum from the machines it was uh very violent self-loathing kind of shit man so yeah pretty pretty negative wasn't very positive stuff at the time i wasn't in a good headspace so yeah it's kind of yeah it's kind of like almost black metally a little bit you're not doing that band anymore uh well we i'm in a, a different incarnation of it which is all the same four members plus a guitar a new guitar player a second guitar player and it sounds more like uh i don't know pink turns blue blue and killing joke it's like totally okay. goth <laughs> it's, like, it, it's it's you know and the funny part was like oh man i don't, I don't think we can still call it hellmouth because it's just too different i think it's fine i mean look at that band ceremony true yeah yeah it's true started as like a total hardcore band now they sound like you know fucking new order yeah and i think they're better as new order yeah totally <laughs> <laughs> don't get me wrong i thought their hardcore was pretty good too but i i like yeah i like their their weird uh their weird new stuff yeah man me too totally i think it's great so you, would you say your headspace was much better when you recorded the new uh machines record yeah man i've never been in better headspace dude i was definitely uh was, you know it was a little bit of dark times for hellmouth for me i was definitely had some minor mental issues and uh you know i was digging into some pills and booze a lot and not not it didn't have anything to do with the band breaking up i was just not in a good headspace in general in my life at all it had nothing to do with the machines breaking up that actually wasn't a big part of it, it was just kind of where i was going well after that so mm -hmm. six or seven years down the road i started kind of getting into a, ba a bad a bad time in my life so hence hellmouth i think people wanted to see me die so that was that band you know what i mean so i was definitely in self-destruct mode and then what what pulled you back out um i don't know man i just quit one day i was like dude this is not helping me 
<laughs> this is not helping my mental state. I tried killing myself and shit. And like, this is not my, this is not, this, this band is not helping me. Like it is, it's bringing out the worst in me. And it's, this band is like allowing me to be the worst of me. It really was. It was like a weird, it was a weird thing, man. It was a, a lot of people probably think I'm sounding crazy right now saying stuff like that, but it really opened up this door for me to be a really fucking miserable, pissed off fucking psychopath. And, and I was, you know, it was the gateway that kept me, it really did. It like allowed me to be that. You know what I mean? I'm not even kidding you. I really feel like people were like happy with it and wanted to watch themselves destruct and they were reading like reading into that band and just waiting for me to do it, you know. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's not, you know, I think for some people, you know, you see artists and stuff and it's almost like not real. It's performance. And so yeah, seeing yeah. somebody self-destruct doesn't necessarily almost strike you as real in a way if it's not you. Yeah, and it was, you know, and it got that way with Break Anchor, too. Like, Break Anchor was not helping. That band may sound like fun, like, sometimes, but, I mean, I, I wrote, like, a song in there called, like, uh, A Failure of, or it was off of the first seven inch called A Failure of Epic Proportions, and it's like, that shit is, it's fucking depressing, and that's where the fuck I was at at the time, you know? I'm glad you, I'm glad you pulled out, and you're doing better now. Yeah, man, you know, having kids will do that to you, so. How old are your kids now? Uh, my oldest is 21 and my youngest is 10. Okay. Wow. That's a gap. Yeah. It's cool, man. We went, she, she works at this place in Detroit called the, my 21 year old does work at this place in Detroit called the Henry Ford museum. Uh-huh. And it's, it's cool. Cause she's working in the Jim Henson, uh, like there's like a, a Jim Henson exhibit. So I got to go see her today working the Jim Henson exhibit. It's pretty fucking cool. That's rad. Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you haven't already, subscribe to my newsletter at aaroncarnes.substack.com. You will get episodes of the In Defense of Ska podcast and other content sent directly to your inbox. If you would like to order my book, In Defense of Ska, you can go to Amazon, request it at your favorite indie bookstore or library, or go to clashbooks.com. And on that note, we leave you by saying... Ska now more than ever. Thank you. <laughs>